You're listening to the Global Ooj Podcast, where every week we learn about the world through the eyes of entrepreneurship. With your host, Ujwal Velagapudi. So what do you do when you're a small business waiting on your account receivables to come in from your client? And in the meantime, you still got to pay for your goods and services, payroll, and overhead. Well, this is the same problem that Mario Jordan Fetalino, or Magellan for short, had while helping his family business. Clients would take months to pay you because of the long payment terms, causing a bind for even some of the most asset-rich of companies. Magellan is the founder and CEO of Acudine Technologies in Manila, Philippines, who is on a mission to help small and medium-sized enterprises with this liquidity constraint in Southeast Asia. They've won numerous startup competitions and are regarded as one of the fastest growing fintech companies in the Philippines. One thing that I loved was that because of their technology and business model, they're able to not only help the large enterprises, but even the smallest of businesses. Keep listening to hear how Accudine and Magellan are making a life-changing impact for those small businesses. And by the way, after the show, he also told me that he makes his own beer. And even though I've never drank, I'll have to get you guys an update on that when we catch up in Manila sometime. Could you walk us through a little bit about what Ecudine is and how you guys are actually facilitating credit to small and medium-sized enterprises? So Ecudine is a technology company that helps facilitate receivables discounting, or in some markets you call it factoring, some other supply chain financing, wherein you use the receivables of mm-hmm. businesses as some sort of a collateral, especially small businesses who may not have hard collaterals like real estate or cars, chattel to, to use in able to get secured financing. Because um, in most emerging markets, you have a lot of these small businesses and they don't really have access to capital because of their size. And unlike, let's say, USA, wherein it's easy to access credit, the credit score of a particular person, in an emerging market mm-hmm. like Philippines, uh, it's hard to make uh, a clear-cut assessment because the credit score, there's not enough credit data available about people. In fact, our credit bureau until today has not really provided enough access to or uh, does not have enough data about the people, about the population, which makes it difficult for entrepreneurs to have access to uh, loan facilities. So through our technology, we're able to provide uh, receivables discounting. We were able to make it available to a lot of small businesses, especially during this period where uh, during the lockdown uh, co- uh, because of COVID-19, uh, a lot of these businesses are badly in need of uh, cash flow. So through us, we are able to a lot of small businesses. I was actually pretty curious on what you said because as a small business that I operate, uh, we've actually used Factory in the past. So on what basis, I mean, can you go through the details of the rigor that is truly involved in actually vetting the companies that are receiving uh, some of this credit? Because I think that's a significant portion where the underwriting process, it's very crucial, right? As far as default rates and, and things like that goes. I saw that question coming since uh, you're also in the finance back. You also have a finance background. 
So from an underwriting perspe uh, perspective, one of the key innovations that we have as a company is we actually have direct access with the anchors of the small businesses. A lot of the small businesses we deal with directly uh, are suppliers of large companies here in the Philippines. And when we started providing our facility and making it available to the public, we started first by coming up with a direct linkage with, let's say, the Unilever or the PNG here in the Philippines. So every time, let's say, a small business provides, sends an invoice to, let's say, PNG or Unilever, we're able to vet it because we are integrated with the ERP system of these companies. So that allows us to verify and authenticate the invoices uh, quite fast and accurately. So that's our biggest innovation. So we combine business development by partnering with these large companies and technology uh, to make factoring more accessible and safe and safe. And so, I mean, factoring is not a new concept, right? I mean, it's been around, but it's digitizing it and providing it more or providing that accessibility to the smaller businesses around the country. And so did that arise from some sort of personal struggle that you had that you came across this or was it a market opportunity that you had seen or how exactly was you know, where was the inception of Acudine? Well, it's not really one or the other. It's usually, it's usually both, right? So in my case, I had to experience the pain myself. Prior to starting Acudine, I was also running another business. And we were, our family was, was a big supplier to certain large phar pharmaceutical companies. So these are the your GSKs, your Pfizer's. And we, we had to deal with like really long payment terms. And I remember there was a time when we were running the business when we were like asset rich. We had like a lot of assets. But if you look at our books, it's mostly receivables. And when we started feeling some cash crunch and uh, during our operations back then, I was, I had like a realization. Why the hell are we like suffering right now when if you look at our books, we, all of these big farmers owe us a lot of money. So why can't we? What can we do about these receivables? And then that's when I uh, learned about factoring. So imagine before starting starting Acidine, I wasn't too familiar about factoring. And then I started to look into the this financial product. I approached banks to avail such service, but I realized it, it, it was so hard to to avail. I was like telling the banks here in the Philippines, look, look at my clients. These are like large companies. How come? It takes you three or four months to like give me a factoring facility for a triple A receivable. So that's when I realized the opportunity behind starting a venture to solve this problem. So first I experienced the problem and second I saw the opportunity then bam the entrepreneur in me decided to like okay why don't we do it ourselves. And so as an entrepreneur, I mean, going back to that particular situation, the biggest issue that I've had when we've done it in the past, or I've seen other companies do it, is that percentage, is how much am I actually losing? What are those terms on it? So, uh, I mean, I used to work in the sourcing world and negotiating this with my vendors has always been an issue. If we're cash rich or if we're not, 
how quickly are we going to pay? You know, what is that discount? Is it 1%, 2%? What is that for, you know, 15 day ex- um, quicker feedback or, or quicker? So, yeah, I, I mean, it's it always blew my mind. What is that fine line between this is going to make sense for my company to do or am I giving away my margins to this other entity just because I'm in a tight crunch? So how do you facilitate something like that? We were expensive in the beginning for obvious reasons, right? When we were starting, the only money that's easy to source is expensive money. So our cost of money was pretty high when we started. So so we offered it first to high margin businesses, someone who can eat our fees. But then we realized, okay, uh, this is not going to be inclusive. Our vision is all about inclusivity. We want to make sure all businesses, especially the small businesses, will have access to this. And yet we can't serve that segment. So slowly, uh, as we build the credibility of the platform and our underwriting process, we started approaching financial institutions uh, to get cheaper money because we realized in factoring, since you're getting a discount, the businesses are very sensitive with how much it eats up their margins. It's not like your typical loan wherein it's it's not tied because a typical loan it's not tied to a company's margins right uh usually they can like factor it up with their margins when they try to sell their products or services to their clients but in factoring when they only see how much it eats up their margin so the only way to go for us was to get cheaper money uh by approaching banks so between 2016 to today from dealing with individuals risk money uh, as our initial funders for the business. We transitioned to evolving the platform to something that banks would like check out. So today we have like three banks who are using the platform, providing cheaper money uh, to a lot of the, to the businesses who are using us. So from a 24% annualized fee, so 24 PA when we started, we're now down to 7% annualized. So that's what we did. Definitely a lot more affordable. Who takes the responsibility of actually getting those funds in? Is it still on the accounts receivable team at the small business to ensure that they are getting paid, which in turn investor is getting paid or the lender is getting paid? I mentioned a while ago, right? We have like a direct relationship with the anchors. So in essence, every time, let's say a PNG is about to release payment for one of their suppliers who discounted their receivable with us, that payment automatically goes back to our trust account, which is essentially attached to the funders, let's say to the bank who buys it. So I've come across this where so, uh, companies just will not pay. You know, I've, uh, I've sat on, for example, as the client, dealing with my vendors, they would come to me saying, which well, we're doing business with you, but you guys aren't paying. And you're a multi-billion dollar company. You're not, you have the money, it's sitting there, but we as a company are, you know, playing around with our funds, right? Um, International company trying to reallocate budgets and whatnot all over the world. So it would always be our vendor's responsibility to hunt us down, ensure that they get the funds actually delivered. So is the onus still on the small business to make sure that their client actually relays the money? Yes, of course, because at the end of the day, the recourse is with these vendors, right? 
it's with these uh, sellers, uh, the SMEs. So if, let's say, their anchor does not pay, the banks are going to chase them. So also to help that structure, one thing we did was we had to make sure that there's accountability with the, with the vendors, right? How do we make sure they try to collect? And you do that by not giving them the whole value of the invoice. So let's say if they discount a $100 invoice, if the cost of the discount, let's say, is 1%, so they're supposed to get 99 right? What we do is we hold out 10 to 15%. And so that means they would only get, they would get 84 or 89% of the value upfront. Okay. So that's their LTV of... Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. That, that makes sense. Okay. So there's at least some sort of, uh, yeah your collateral that's involved. And as far as, um, I'm just curious, in the Philippines, do you guys have certain usury laws where you cannot charge an X amount of interest rate or it's you cannot surpass X amount? For financing, there is like an interest cap, but factoring in Philippines is not considered uh-huh. financing. Yeah, I've come across that where, you know, because the industry, I, I to be honest, I wasn't aware of it till maybe about a year or two ago and it was just it just opened up this whole you know i wish i had this back when i was in my corporate world (laughs) where you know i could provide this to my to my suppliers uh because yeah it it uh it's an alternative and definitely provides that ease when you are a small business and your client even though they could have billions in the bank are simply delaying that process. So as far as your the clientele and the small businesses, so what is a small business as far as um, you know revenue or how small are you able to provide the services for are your lenders able to underwrite it for? Our fees are all percentage-based and we designed it that way so that we can reach the smallest businesses, like micro scale. So imagine, I'll give you a real example. We have a vegetable vendor who has like, invoices with a large supermarket worth $20, $20-$30 on a weekly basis. But despite the size of that invoice, he needs to wait 60 days to get paid, which is crazy, crazy for $20, right? Uh, But that $20 is like budget for that vendor, for his family, for a two-week period. Imagine, that's like two weeks worth of budget. So since we're percentage-based, and there's no fixed fee. We're able to we're able to like discount his invoice. Of course, we're gonna make a small amount of money, but at least in the grand scheme of things, we're able to equitably serve both the micro SME like this and a large vendor similarly, right? So, right. That's our goal. Magellan, that's that is crazy. That um, I mean, that's just blowing my mind because I've you know I was born in India. Uh, every time I go back or, you know, I've visited various developing nations and or even frontier emerging markets and, you know, there's street vendors, there's folks that are quite in, in that boat as far as revenue goes. We're talking tens, maybe hundreds of dollars on a monthly basis or weekly basis. And that is their life and that is their livelihood. Yet, if they are stuck with getting that credit from their uh from their clients then yeah they that is crazy that that's amazing Magellan. to be able to provide that to that small of scale i because whenever i go to a bank I, when i was starting off and trying to buy my first business or my first real estate um uh, 
property, they had thresholds. You know, I was trying to buy something very small, very cheap, and they said, "No, get get the heck out of here. We're a big bank, multinational bank. You know, we're not we're not dealing with pennies and chump change here." And it was a sizable amount, but it still was way too low for them. And I had no other option except to go cash and to purchase it. And on this front, where you're an operating business, you need this cash flow, and you're that small just starting off. That is, um, that is a full life. I mean, that is literally their operation. That's that's amazing. And it was our vision, which well, uh, we wanted to make sure it's inclusive, right? So we the only question we had to answer is how do we operate this business without accumulating a huge OPEX that will make us inaccessible to small assets. So that was the problem we're trying to solve. And we're very aware of that. And that's how we designed our business. Heavy tech based. It only takes, it only, we only need one person to run the platform. We, are, we only need one person to run the platform. Can you go a little bit into the tech, your infrastructure, as far as, um, you know, how it was designed at a, at a high level? On a high level, um, the biggest problem with uh, the landscape from a tech perspective is that every company uses their own ERP system uses their own, uh, each bank has their own core banking system. So that fragmented tech environment mm-hmm. makes it difficult to, for all of these uh, businesses to like do things integrate in an integrated manner. Having an understanding of this, we decided, okay, why don't we be that technology provider who can like make all of these systems talk to each other so that we can provide factoring uh, sustainably. So we designed a modular architecture on the technology. So we have a capability to talk, let's say, to SAP. Uh, we can talk to, if you're using QuickBooks, we can talk to QuickBooks. We have APIs available for all of this. And if you need this, and then when we talk to, let's say, to banks, oh, you already have this? You already have this particular KYC module? Okay, we'll take it out. How about we just use this? So it's very modular. We designed it like a Lego. Wherein you, okay, if you don't need this part and you want to save money on that, we'll take it out. Let's use this. So that that's how we did it. That's interesting. And as far as how you're able to provide that for businesses at that scale. Okay. So for businesses at that scale, the reason why we can provide it to like those small uh, SMEs is because almost all our expense as a company is variable. We don't have any fixed cost. So everything is tied up to the transaction. So if there's no transaction, there's no cost to it. If there is a transaction, depending on the size of of the transaction, then that's the time we accumulate cost to it. So that's it. And is that something that you had stumbled upon after trial and error? Or was that kind of the mindset going forward? Hey, I know we should be a variable-based company because of the scale that you want to provide it to some of these smaller businesses. So we need to be this way. We can't sustain if we do have these high fixed costs. So was that from the onset or was that like through trial and error, this is working out now and let's go with this? I'm not that smart, Ujwal. Uh, <laughs> we had to, we made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. So that was the vision, yes. But we had to stumble on 
a number of like uh, challenges over the the years to really connect the dots. Are you able to take what you're doing right now into to other countries? I mean, I'm sure on your in your vision or on your drawing board, you've got the growth. You know, you you've got your projections outlined. Where is Acudine going to be available in the future? What other regions? What other countries? Are are you currently operating in the Philippines or in other markets within Southeast Asia, or do you still have plans? F- to continue expanding that? We are in Southeast Asia. So our facility is called Chope in Myanmar. So we've been in Myanmar for two years now, helping out a lot of SMEs in that part of the world. We are also already working and uh, we have a partner uh, in Vietnam who's already, we were supposed to launch this year, but we got held up because of uh, COVID-19. So we will most likely push that project in 2021. Uh, and of course, we're already we're planning at least in the next five years to be a significant player in the larger Southeast Asian countries like uh, Indonesia and uh, Malaysia. And, and so when you go, you, you mentioned a partner in Vietnam. So can you, or even Myanmar, where you've been for two years, can you go through exactly how that works? I mean, you're running in the Philippines in, let's say, 2018, and you want to go to Myanmar. Where do you start? How does that process work? Who do you partner with there? And how do you know who to partner with? And why? And also, why partner versus doing it fully yourself? Well, you have to understand that uh, if you want to scale fast, it, it always makes sense to have like a local partner someone who understands the market because i mean yes it's easy for someone to understand a market right? looking from the outside but knowing the market knowing the people uh within that ecosystem is very different and you have to understand in asia it's all about trust business is all about trust and building trust if you're coming in as a, the new guy building trust takes time so if you want to like hasten that up, go find that one anchor partner uh, that you want to be who's a local or who has been there for a very long time that the market knows, the market trusts and work with them. Uh, Find that right partner for you because that will be your anchor to grow your business in that market in an exponential manner. And that's what happened with us in Myanmar. We partnered with a group who knows almost, who is known by a lot of the conglomerates in Myanmar. And that gave us, I'm not going to say easy, but uh, it gave us like access to all of these companies with together with like the trust that they bring in uh, to the picture. So that's the game in Asia. That's the, that's how you play, play here. In and you know that uh, from India, of course. It's all about trust. Right. And, and so how, how does that prototypical partner look like? I mean, who are you partnering with? Like you mentioned, the access, the network, the resources that they're able to provide and the doors that they can open? Or is it you know more so, hey, there's this financial services business. They don't have this service. Let's go and integrate and you know provide a complimentary service. Or how does that work? Or is it more so your tech stack that you're it can go two ways. Either we partner with someone who has access to the money, the financial services, or we partner with someone who has access to the market. And then usually we just fill the void that's missing. So we can go either way. What about opportunities outside of Southeast Asia? I mean, is that a market that you first want to master? 
grow into or is it do you see additional opportunities in other regions you know for example let's say a very large market like india for example or china i mean or are those too saturated with like products and there's i the the thing uh which wallace there's a lot of players similar to who's doing a similar business to what we do uh like in india you have validus uh there's even a uh, credx the way to play this this business from my perspective is you you have to be a market leader in your region in your market and later on all those the giants once you attain market leadership it's either you become the acquirer or you get acquired by one of these players so i'd rather focus our resources becoming a market leader in this region rather than spread out our resources all over we don't want to be like uber who's just like all over the place uh, we want to show that our dominance in a particular region and so that our compet comp- our friends and competitors can feel it and so can you give me a little bit more of an understanding on southeast asia i mean all these regions these continents i mean these i I feel like it's too broad or do you disagree i mean it's clumping everything into southeast asia too broad especially when you mention indonesia malaysia those are uh, in my opinion very different markets and what's your take on that and is it um, really a lot more minute than the entire list of all the southeast asian countries one thing about southeast asia you're right culturally it's quite diverse, but at the same time, in terms of like government systems, religion, it's super diverse. There's, it's like a, a hot pot of all of these uh, ideas. So getting into another market is quite challenging uh, because your model in Philippines may not work as easy when you get to, let's say, Indonesia or Malaysia. But one thing that really binds uh, these markets is there are certain problems that are very common. Obviously, all SMEs around this region has financing issues. Uh, the inaccessibility to financing is a common problem. So it's easier for our, at least for our business, to like go into Myanmar and tell them, this is what we do. We see that this is the opportunity. Can we work together? Uh, okay, let's do it. Uh, we understand what you're doing. So the, the big hurdles, the big hurdles in getting to, let's say, Indonesia or Malaysia uh, would be, number one, just finding the right partner. Uh, and number two, Islamic banking. Mm-hmm. It's tough to package everything in, right? Especially Indonesia, Malaysia into the Southeast Asia bubble. So, I mean, how would you go about expanding and what's your take on the nuances and the various uh, degrees of understanding each culture, language? I, I mean, everything all the intricacies that come with that always localized it's not it's not going to be an out-of-box solution so you have to make sure that when you enter a market you localize understand the needs of the market understand what you have that they they need that they need and what you have that they don't so by being flexible on how you approach the markets the opportunity opens up right and when you go into those new markets what how does your team scale up alongside with it so for example in myanmar is it the partner that you have over there they are scaling their infrastructure and you're providing certain resources from your headquarters or how does that look do you have boots on the ground as well we have boots on the ground it usually takes about six months to to do a full transition with and uh in that six months obviously we have a few people like about three or four guys who would be in the market to 
do knowledge transfer and like um, understand what needs to be changed in the system uh, depending on the market needs and after that six month period we lessen the manpower that we provide and we just do regular audits and checks uh, on a monthly basis to see what else needs to be done and from a strategic perspective we're usually because we create a JV uh, in those markets so uh, we take board seats in those uh, businesses uh, that are built uh, which so that we are able to guide uh, the JV partner uh, on how the business should be run and uh, scaled uh, and how should the, the strategy be formed for that particular market. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned three part, uh, three banks that you've partnered up with outside of that liquidity that, you know, your lender is uh, able to provide to ultimately the small businesses. In addition to that, what about to fund your operations? I mean, did, was this a bootstrapped operation and uh, did you have various rounds of capital raises that gone through and can you take us through how that from inception how you know where we are today with that when we started we bootstrapped right uh we bootstrapped until we reached uh, a proof, proof of market so when we started having customers that's when we decided okay hmm it's time to raise some money <laughs> so uh because we, we needed the money to scale up the technology if, if you saw the Oh my God, if, if you see the early version of our platform, you'd vomit. <laughs> you would vomit, my friend. The How bad the UI is and how yeah. bad the back end is. It's just like, yeah. it's, it's shit. Right. So, but it works. It's mm -hmm. shit, but it works. It was enough to get funding? Enough as to get to proof of market, right? Um, right. So we started raising capital uh, because we, we know the kind of technology we want to create. We, we, we ha I, ha I, I, I had a very good CTO who really like designed the modules and how it needs to be built based on the technology uh, environment in Philippines. So when we understood the costs that need to be that is needed to develop it, uh, that we started raising seed capital. And after a few months, we realized, okay, we need to ramp up our marketing, uh, acquire more of these anchors, the conglomerates, and vendors so uh so we we had two rounds of capital uh, plain, uh just to uh shorten things out but ever since 2018 we haven't raised any additional equity most likely when we start mobilizing uh let's say vietnam that's the time when we will raise capital again and how was that process within i mean was most of the equity raised within the philippines or did you go to other you know, adjacent countries or uh, how was that process in, in in terms of being able to woo the investors within your local market or uh, even foreign money in? Fundraising in Philippines locally is challenging. We don't have a mature VC market here. There's a huge, uh, there's a huge gap from seed to like private equity. So private equity money would not look at deals that's lower than $5 million. So that's the challenge. So we had to like raise also internationally. We have like a, a family office in Singapore who invested in us. We have 500 startups 
uh, is one of our investors. We became part of Seed Stars. It's a Swiss organization uh, for a while because we won their competition in Geneva. So when we when we won, uh, they gave us uh, funding to buy equity uh, in the business. So so yeah, we we had to raise outside of Philippines mainly because there's not enough this VC here. And do you see that trend shifting at least a little bit in the past few years, or is that still way too early? Um, still not enough exits for some of these VCs to say, hey, you know what, I'm gonna jump in here. You know what I realized? The reason why there's not enough VCs here is because Philippine businesses, Filipinos who have money, they don't like the Western model of doing venture capital, wherein Filipinos with money, they have the capacity to invest, but they only invest in businesses they understand and businesses who can generate cash flow so if you don't generate cash flow at the onset they're not going to put money in and now looking back with all this pandemic that has happened that kind of thinking will just grow further i have a feeling that there will be much less money that will be invested in like concepts ideas that are not proven that are in their nascent stage but at the same time, I can see a lot of entrepreneurs, especially here in Philippines, who started to shift their mindset from let's delay cash flow and just like perfect this product. Let's just keep burning cash and perfect, make this product perfect. To, you know what? It works. We don't care. Let's start generating cash. So, so that Eastern mindset of like is being developed. So even if the local businessmen here who have money who wants to invest still don't don't have like the mindset to invest in tech businesses who are burning cash. What's happening is that the entrepreneurs here are ele- getting elevated to a point who, to understand this mindset. So everyone's most entrepreneurs here now are trying to like uh, be more Eastern in their mindset versus the Western uh, model. So you think it's gonna take a step back in terms of the Western philosophy in terms of VC deployment yeah. Yeah. before it gets Nobody better. likes it here, man. Nobody likes it. <laughs> <laughs> huh. That's so interesting. Yeah. That it you know, that that is really interesting because there's so is it would you say a lot easier to get the foreign money because there are so many big Western companies in the Philippines, some sort of operations or some sort of entity in the Philippines. So is it uh, is it primarily the Western money that's coming in, if, if not all? Actually, there's not a lot of Western money coming in. There's just more local money that's like um, being made available. Uh, so, and more Chinese money. There's a lot of Chinese money coming in. How is that relationship? I mean, as, as far as politically, the Philippines, I mean, how is that structure? Um, I'm sure as a fintech company, have you gone through or have you had any hurdles with any government regulatory boards or agencies or things like that where, hey, they're paying the butt, we got to go around them? Or has it been relatively seamless because your operations are kind of uh, running in parallel, not uh, clashing with anything that's in place? Our story is financial inclusion. Uh, so the mere fact that this is the our message mm-hmm. uh, out out in the public, we got the support of a lot of our, of the regulators. We're working very closely with them. I guess that we did the right thing okay. of like crafting our message mm-hmm. that way because the way our regulators police players in the finance space, it's just my God, it's so difficult to do anything. 
but so when we, so it's all about the message and the relationship we built uh, with them early on. And what what about the local ecosystem of your peers? You know your your fellow founders, um, you know other developers, other people within the industry or in the tech world. How has that changed over the past few years since you started? Um, in what way? In terms of the in terms uh, of startup ecosystem. Yeah, in terms of the growth, and then um, I guess I'm more so getting at when you from when you have started to write. We're a very different organization from 2016 right, right. when we started, and I have to say there's been a lot of um, I would like call them faces. There were faces from 2016 to 2020, wherein there was a fa- so. 2016 was the the excitement phase. There were only four of us, and I remember. Uh, so it's me, my co-founders, and we would attend all of these startup festivals overseas. We would go to Hong Kong, we'd go to Singapore, we even went to Europe, and it was fun. It was exciting because you're you're pitching a new idea, you're pitching, you feel like you're very excited about. Uh, the future so uh, and we were lean so it was just us so we were like uh, we were like just friends doing a, a very exciting project and then you start getting employees right you start getting employees you start getting new people in and you have to do it quite fast so all of a sudden from that phase one excitement we have to like okay we can't be as cool as before we have to like also set rules. We have to set standards in this organization, so so that these new employees have something to to follow. They need to know uh, what needs to be done. So we started like framing everything. So this is like the part when we there was a lot of burnouts on our end during that period because you have to put structure on everything. You have to like. Every detail you have to like monitor uh, all the KPIs that you pass on to the employees needs to be clear, needs to be defined. So that was like the the burnout period, and then you have the the governance mm-hmm. period wherein your board, since you already have investors, starts putting in governance structures into your organization, and then now. Uh, Oh, so now I can't do this. I can't do that anymore. I can't decide for myself anymore. So from that startup feel when you feel like you can do anything, everything in like an instant to like today wherein there's so much (laughs) parameters, there's so much governance structure, which I'm not complaining on, by the way. I mean, it's good. I, I am happy that the organization has evolved from a from an upstart to now an actual organization with proper rules and protocols to follow. So mm-hmm. that's how it evolved. Like right now, the only reason I'm wearing a T-shirt is because we're all working from home. But on a regular day, I have to be in my barong. Barong is like our Filipino formal suit going to the office so yeah yeah no that's amazing i mean the journey that where you guys started where you guys have come right now and then 
you know, next time I visit Southeast Asia, you know, hopefully and it'll be ubiquitous all over uh, with your platform. Magellan, again, going back to what you told me about street vendor, I feel that vision. I, I, I absolutely love it. I truly hope that all businesses are really provided that credit and have that accessibility and, you know, services like Acudine are able to provide that. So absolutely amazing. Thank you again so much today. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for the opportunity, Ujwal. Yeah, no, definitely. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Or if you already have, please share with a friend that you think might enjoy the show. 